This is a podcast by Wellhouse Church, where we take a closer look and dig a little deeper into this week's sermon. What's going on, Bible nerds? We're talking about Abraham. So let's take a closer look. Let's do it. So last week we covered up to the end of the Noah story. Right. The next two chapters, so in chapter 10, you get a genealogy, which if you know how to read genealogies, there's value in reading that genealogy. 11 is the Tower of Babel, which is where you get the the new languages, the scattering, because they're trying to build this temple. At which point, I made made this statement last week that God seems like he's starting over with Noah. Mm -hmm. God seems to be starting over again in a new way, without this kind of mass death mm-hmm. at Babel. At the end of Babel, God decides to start over again, and he starts over with a guy named Abraham, or Abram. And he makes this covenant with Abraham, or Abram. And in the covenant, God has previously, he starts with Adam, and then Adam doesn't work. And then he goes back to Noah, and Noah doesn't work. And then at Babel, he scatters everybody and goes, okay, I'm going to pick a new righteous person, and I'm going to make a covenant with them for their family. Because yeah. remember, the first part of the covenant is that Abraham will have, Abram will have a son. And when, even now, when we talk about the patriarchs of our faith, who do we say? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Israel comes to birth through a family. Our faith comes through a single family. And this is, the text that we're going to be in in Genesis 17, is the second time the covenant is like reiterated. Mm -hmm. And this is what the text says. 17 verse 1, when Abram was 99 years old, so, also, for context, Isaac has not been born yet. Right. But we've already had the Hagar and Ishmael situation. Right. Where Abraham tried, Abram tried to force God's will into him having a kid rather than trusting God to have a kid. Right. So, Ishmael's been born. And this is, this is actually the text where God actually says, no, it's not Ishmael that I was talking about. You are going to have a son from Sarah, your wife. Verse 1. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. Okay. That's God's command to Abram. But he's making a covenant with Abram. We haven't got to God's part of the covenant yet, but he's making a covenant with Abram. That covenant persists upon verse 1. A covenant is a two-sided agreement. Right. God has a part to play and Abram has a part to play. Abram's part to play, Abram's role to play is walk before God and be blameless. Now let's talk about that word blameless. 
Is blameless sinless? No. So what is blameless? I don't know. Let me ask you a different question. Can you recall anyone in the biblical narrative that's considered blameless? Old Testament? You could use Old Testament. There are also references in the New Testament. I'm, I, I'm having a hard time. Job. 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 That's the one I wanted you to come up with. Cool. Job. Job is considered blameless. Now, that, that's the deal, though. Blameless is not sinless. Right. The other person that's called blameless is Noah. That's your other easy reference because we just talked about him. But blameless. I remember if the text said that about Noah. I yeah. Thought so, but they, I he's actually called righteous in the first explanation and then blameless in another one. Gotcha. Or maybe those are inverted. I can't remember. But he's called it, righteous and blameless. It is inverted because the Greek would refer to. Well, there's no Greek in the Old Testament. Well, that's what I'm saying, that righteousness would be in the New Testament in Hebrews. No, no, no. Noah is called both. There's righteousness. It's Sedekah in Hebrew. Oh. Okay. So, what ends up happening is blameless is not being sinless. Nobody is sinless except Jesus. But there are lots of people that are considered blameless, so what's the difference here about being blameless? The difference is having received expiation. Expiation is that your sin has been covered. Some of the metaphors for this in the scriptures are that God casts our sin as far as the east is from the west. Another one is that he throws it into the depths of the sea. And the last one, or the last prominent one, is that he puts it behind his back. Being blameless is that you have found yourself in a place where you've been forgiven your trespasses. Think back to the Lord's Prayer. That's all blameless is. There's nothing really special about being blameless other than what it means theologically. So for your ethic, being blameless is not actually related to your ethic at all. I think that's why the text says, walk before me. Mm. So now you have a twofold command of Abraham. Be in the fold of expiation. Make sure that your sins have been forgiven. And be a person of a faithful ethic to walk before God and do the things of God. All right, Abram. If you can do that, which, is that really that hard of an ask? I don't think so. I mean, at, at this time, it was a little bit harder because sacrifices and things, but... Uh, no. There, oh, Levitical wait, law's not here. Law Levitical law's not here yet. Huh. They yeah. are sacrificing and doing some things, right? Abram's doing some sacrificial things. But God, at least in the narrative, hasn't really commanded sacrifice at this point in, in the way that we, it shows up in Levitical law and those kinds of things. There have been moments of sacrifice and things, specifically with Noah right after he gets off the boat. But now, that's Abram's requirement for covenant. This is God's. Picking up at verse 2. 
I will make my covenant between me and you and will make you exceedingly numerous. Then Abram fell on his face and God said to him, as for me, this is my covenant with you. You shall be the ancestor of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be Abram, but you shall be Abraham. For I have made you the ancestor of a multitude of nations, and I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings shall come from you. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give you, give to you and to your offspring after you the land where you are now an alien, all the land of Canaan for a perpetual holding, and I will be their God. God asks Abram to do two things. God commits to doing seven things. God has the much larger ask, like the much larger thing that he's offering in this moment. It's definitely God lopsided. Mm -hmm. God is doing much more for Abram than he's doing, than Abram's doing for God. So I want to point that out, that even though God has placed an expectation upon Abram, God is doing significantly more than he's asking of Abram. Because, well, there's one piece that I want to point out here. How long does Abram's part of the covenant last? Till Jesus, right? No. No, Abram's part. How long does Abram have to walk before God? Oh, until he dies. Until he dies. What does God say? Verse 7, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant. God has made an eternal covenant in this moment. And Abram only has one lifetime. Right. Plus, God's asking Abram to do two things and God's committing to do seven things. So, yes, I hear that. Can I make a comment that isn't and by no means meant to say anything bad? It's just an observation. Go ahead. All the things that God is committing to do for Abraham is beneficial to him also. To God or to Abraham? To God. In what way? Well, I guess it depends on how you see this, but... um, Blah, 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 for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring. Um, and then down in verse 8, where you are now an alien, all of the land of Canaan, for a perpetual holding, and I will be their God. Why is this beneficial to God? Because now he has more followers, more worshipers type deal. Well, no, not necessarily, because there's times where these people turn away from him. This this doesn't actually guarantee God anything. 
Mm-hmm. It doesn't. The only ask, and notice the covenant's not conditional upon their faithfulness to God, other than it says, I will be their God. It doesn't say that they will accept me as their God. It says, I will be their God. I will continue to protect and take care of them. But there's no conditional like perpetuity upon Abram's offsprings. Mm-hmm. Actually, the entire if is upon Abram. If Abram does this, God will do all of these things, of which God's actually on the hook for all of them. Yeah. It doesn't actually say that God reaps any kind of benefit. I mean, he does because he desires to be in relationship with us. Right. But as far as some kind of power construct where God receives some kind of glory or benefit, it's not necessarily, it, well, it doesn't have to be there. Right. God puts himself on the hook for an everlasting covenant of which is dependent upon Abram, Abram's own life. Mm-hmm. There's no stipulation upon the people. It's just that God's going to be their God. He's going to protect. He's going to continue to prosper. He's going to do his part. Of which two different times, well, one other time, God says, nope, I'm done with you. I'm giving you a writ of divorce. Mm -hmm. It's Jeremiah. Go into slavery. So let's break God's part down. And I will make my covenant between me and you and will make you exceedingly numerous. Now, Clayton, do you remember what covenant number one is in chapter 15? No. Thou will make you as numerous as the stars right. in the sky and the sands of the sea. Right, right, right. But you will have a son and you will prosper. So exceedingly numerous. That's a way of reminding Abram of the first covenant that God made with him. Verse three, then Abram fell on his face. Why would you fall on your face? What What is happening when you fall on your face? Some sort of grieving type deal, not like repentance. Grieving, like repentance. Yeah. yeah, repentance. What's he repenting of? <clears throat> Sin with Hagar. Mm. The abuse of Hagar to try to force God's will through the handmaid. God reminds him of the first covenant he made with him. Abram falls on his face and repents. Now notice the very next thing that happens. And God said to him, as for me, this is my covenant with you. You shall be the ancestor of a multitude of nations of which he already told him. No longer shall your name be Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the ancestor of a multitude of nations. I know we're running out of time, but let's talk a little bit about name changes in the Hebrew Bible. Can you think of another time where somebody's name has changed? Um, Jacob. To Israel. To Israel. No. When you see someone's name change, you should think of it as a change in life trajectory. Right. If you go research this, you're going to be told you should think of it as a Christian version 
a Christian experience in the Old Testament of conversion, that your old self has died and you're a new person. Got you. Don't believe that. Okay. That's not the Hebrew Bible. The Hebrew Bible's not projecting Jesus onto these people. Like, no, that's not what's happening. What's happening is God is saying, I'm doing something different in you that I was not doing prior to this moment. You should not think of it as that, like it's a moment of conversion and they were heinous before and now they're good. Like, no, no, no. These are people of faith of which God is saying the same thing he says in Jeremiah I'm doing a new thing. Mm-hmm. That's what name changes recommend. Like, that's what they signify. I am doing a new thing. So here's God's new thing I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I don't really. What I see in this moment, what have we denoted this kind of fruitful metaphor up to this point in the narrative? It's this kind of Christian ethic and living the fruits of God's character. Right. So when God says, I will make you fruitful, what is he saying? Well, based on the context that we've given fruitfulness, it would seem like he's saying, um, I will make you more like me in a way. Some sort of deification type thing happening. So what happens in this moment is actually that God takes all the pressure off of Abram. God takes on Abram's part of the covenant too as his own responsibility. Mm. God's on the hook for all of this. Abram has his role to play because he still has free will, but God is saying, I am going to do my part in getting you where I need you to be in order to make this covenant real, in order to make this covenant go through. I'm going to be on the hook for your part too. That's a big statement. That's a big deal when you break this down and really begin to wrestle with this metaphor and what what the text of fruitfulness is bringing to you because all uh, literally all of the New Testament literally stems to this moment. Genesis 17 is like the turning place that everybody points to because it's it's the reminder of the covenant right before Isaac's born. Mm-hmm. Like this is the kind of climactic moment in the story of the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. And God says, hey, actually, I'm on the hook for all of it. Because where I need you to be, you can't get there without me. So I'm going to do my part and I'm going to get you where you need to go. And I will make nations of you and kings shall come from you. So I'm going to prosper you. I'm going to give you blessing. Verse 7, I will establish my covenant between me and you. Now notice, this is where it also kind of changes. And God 
provides a significantly larger amount to the covenant than Abram does because Abram stems off his own life of which God's already taken a large part of his role too. Mm -hmm. And now he says, and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offsprings after you. Why is it a big deal that God makes an everlasting covenant? Because when we get to Paul, Paul says, for in Christ, there's neither Greek nor Jew, nor male nor female. The beginning of Matthew's gospel starts Matthew 1, and this is the genealogy of who? Jesus. And who does it start with? Abraham. Abraham. And it goes through Jesus. Right. To which point Jesus becomes the restorer, the savior, Emmanuel. And Paul says, for in Christ, there's no more. Even in Matthew's uber-Jewish version, he's saying, hey, in Jesus, all of this goes back to Abraham, which tells me that even us Gentiles are included in this everlasting covenant. Mm. This moment is our claim as much as it is Israel's claim. Verse 8, and I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land where you are now an alien, all of the land of Canaan, for a perpetual holding, and I will be their God. What you have to understand about the ancient Hebrew culture is they're small. Most scholars, just for a frame of reference, the Egyptian army never deployed more than 20,000 people. 20,000 fighting soldiers. Most scholars think that at the Exodus, the entire Hebrew population, so this is an Exodus, after Abraham, significantly after Abraham, they're only 30,000 strong. People that small don't have a land. Yeah. They don't have a home. They're constantly being uprooted by people of more power. This claim to a land is the ultimate experience of peace for a Hebrew people, for an for a ancient Hebrew reader. What's the land for you, Clayton? It's the culminated heaven on the new earth. Yeah. This ultimate renewal to a place of paradise, back to the way it should have been in the land, mm -hmm. in the earth, the place where God wanted us to be dwelling anyways. Yeah. It's where he put us in Genesis 1. God literally puts himself on the hook for everything. God's responsible for all of this. Yeah. And... 
I think it's really interesting in my mind that God says, I will make you fruitful. He's already given us the multiplication language. Make you exceedingly numerous. Yeah. Just like he did in Genesis 1. Be fruitful and multiply. We've already got that piece. God's speaking to something else in this moment. I will make you fruitful. God says, even back in Genesis 17, I know you can't do it. I know that the place that I want you to be, the world and the experience of trauma, not just that you've had, but that the world has had, the world has experienced, the earth has experienced trauma. As much trauma that sin has affected us, it has affected creation. Just the, the general trauma that exists in the world. I know that's going to prevent you from being able to get where I need you to be. And so I'm going to do my part and I'm going to do a transformative work in you so that you might be fruitful. And it's in that moment that we can all point back to when we're in our seasons of fruit abuse where we're doing things wrong and we feel like we can't do anything right. We can look back to Genesis 17 in this moment because I think what God is saying in this moment is, hey, I've made a covenant with you in which I'm perpetually going to say, Unless you just outright become idolaters, rejecting God the way that Israel does for the second exile, you're doing better than you think you are.